Our cell is the leading distributor of radiotherapy patient positioning equipment and physics QA products for the UK and Ireland, supplying both the NHS and the private sector. Why not register and join us at the Macromedics User Meeting on the 8th of November at the Novotel Hotel in London Paddington? This will be an incredibly insightful day to listen to talks on the Macromedics mobilisation range from our various ranges of thermoplastics all the way to our all-in-one solutions and SBRT products. Please do get in touch for more information. And finally, as always, do not hesitate to discuss your product and service requirements with our friendly and knowledgeable account specialists as and when required. We are all from a radiotherapy background and we are more than happy to chat about the clinical benefits and the workflow of all of our products. If you would like to browse our products, please go to our website at www.osl.uk.com or if you would like to speak to us, please call 01743 462 694. Hi, my name's Laura and I work at Convensys as a Partnerships Manager. Join us at the NHS Oncology Conference on the 6th of June 2023 in Manchester. We'll open the debate on how the NHS is planning to lean on new models of delivery and innovation to help manage the current treatment backlogs and improve outcomes on a national scale. All tickets are free for the NHS to attend. To register for your free ticket, visit convensis.co.uk. and welcome to Rad Chat, the first therapeutic radiographer-led oncology podcast. Welcome to podcast number 65. Hold on, Joe. there's something you need to say. We need to edit the beginning <gasps> now, actually. We're, We're award-winning! We're award-winning! We're multi-award winning. <laughs> <laughs> so, you can continue from now, but I just thought I'd point it out just for our listeners. Uh, and when we're releasing this, happy Halloween as well. <laughs> That has got to be the most disjointed start to a podcast ever. But we, we're going to roll with it. We're going to roll with it. Okay, I will I will commence again. Um, hello, everyone, and welcome to Rad Chat, the first multi-award winning therapeutic radiographer-led oncology podcast. Welcome to podcast number 65. My name is Jane McNamara, and I'm joined by fellow host Norman Jolka Anderson. Hi, everyone. So a big thank you to our last guest, Sarah Russell, who talked about living and exercising with an ileostomy. If you haven't had a chance yet, please do go and take a listen. So we're really pleased to introduce our guest for this evening, Catherine Neck, who's going to be discussing her amazing role, rehabilitation and um, prehabilitation and long-term conditions. So welcome, Catherine. Thanks, Joe. Thanks, Emma. Thank you so much for joining us and giving up your evening. We do thoroughly appreciate it. Um, so Catherine, do you want to start by telling us a little bit about yourself and, and what you do? Yeah, uh, so I'm, I'm a physio, registered physio, um, and I've worked in the NHS for what feels like forever, um, sort of 20 plus years, somewhere along the line. Um, I've been in a, in a non-clinical, non-patient facing role um, for this role in particular for, for about just over three years. So um, it's clinical clinical project uh, clinical program lead for cancer and long-term conditions and I work for um, South Central and West Commissioning Support Unit which is part of the NHS um, and essentially what I, what we do is we we run projects um, anything to do with cancer and long-term conditions um, we're a clinically led team so we're a team of um, we've there's a couple of physios we've got a couple of cancer nurses we've got um, a therapeutic radiographer who's fairly recently joined us so that which is absolutely wonderful because she brings a completely new dimension as well so we're growing all the time um and the the beauty of it is we although we have sort of project and program management um experience um we've got that clinical experience the clinical bit that can kind of add to the whole kind of the so what about projects that mean something for patients um, and that's really important because often projects that get done are very much about there's this problem we'll come in and do something to you give your report bye bye off we go well, we we tend to come in find try and find out what the the need is how it can add value to patient care um, and then work with whoever it is within the nhs as our usual people we work with cancer alliances or integrated care boards or it could be a uh, providers could be anybody really um, about what it is that they need us to help them with and then we work with them um, to deliver kind of um, 
hopefully a good outcome. It could be an evaluation. It could be a service review. It could be developing a, a, a dashboard of, um, you know, analysis and products and um, of um, patient pathways. It's as long as it is broad. Um, and obviously just cancer in its own right is as long as it is broad because it covers all spectrums and obviously long-term conditions is even bigger. Um, so we, um, <laughs> so we're quite, quite busy in that respect. Um, prior to that, I was a Macmillan AHP lead for, um, SWAG Cancer Alliance. So South, uh, Somerset, Wiltshire, Avon and Gloucestershire. Um, so kind of, that's where I kind of got into the cancer world in terms of AHPs. Um, and then obviously prior to that was a clinical um, physio, in, in, mainly doing inpatients, kind of renal vascular surgery, interested in chronic disease management, which is kind of how I got into cancer and then into this sort of role as well. So, yeah, that's my that's my potted history in a, in a nutshell, hopefully. <laughs> that's an amazing history. And I think for anyone listening, hopefully highlights again that physios don't just do sports injuries. There's so much more to don't. physios. I definitely, you wouldn't yeah. want me doing sports injuries, to be fair. That's, <laughs> I'd be dangerous. Where you are now, I think an important question to ask is, with budgeting, how much money are you in charge of? Um, it's a funny one, really. The way, the way we work, and it's taken a bit of getting used to from my way of doing things because kind of coming from an NHS we're in we are part of the NHS we work for the NHS but we don't get any funding um, centrally from Department of Health and um, so our project we get commissioned to do pieces of work essentially um, in the same way as a as a private um, consultancy firm might do if you like the difference is obviously we are NHS part of the NHS family we don't we're not in the same league in terms of that in terms of expense and things um, and the other thing is we we take things from one place and share it across um, wider organizations and, and and learning so that you know people aren't in effect kind of paying something twice you're getting um, the beauty of knowing that something works over here so we might be just connecting up two areas that are trying to do the same thing or someone that's done something well so in terms of budgets, it, it's not a, a budget itself. Each project has a budget um, and we have to manage the projects as you would sort of any any sort of project. So bringing them in on time and on budget um, and 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 yeah, it sort of works in that sort of same way. But it's it's not it's very much a not for profit kind of way of doing things. Um, and then what we have is any sort of surplus that's made by the organisation can be um, put into projects that we would fund as an organisation that we think is the right thing to do um, because, you know, not necessarily find someone who will commission us to do it, but actually because we think actually let's test it, let's do it, let's see if it's the right thing and um, and then spread it so that, again, things aren't, you know, people, there's lots of reinventing of wheels that goes on um, and, you know, everyone's busy, everyone's trying to run their services, everybody's trying, thinks of an, a great idea and there's some amazing ideas. Um, what we try and do is kind of like join a lot of that up and, and kind of hopefully reduce duplication um, and kind of get as, you know, best practice shared across, you know, as wider, you know, remit as possible, really. I'm really glad you highlighted that, Catherine, because it is one of the frustrations that I know lots of colleagues have when they're doing projects or they're engaged in service development. You know, some of the HE projects are quite regionally based. Um, you know, how would someone go about disseminating maybe some of their project outcomes? I'm just thinking about some of the smaller radiotherapy projects that actually have far bigger ramifications for maybe an oncology pathway how do people even know where to go to kind of disseminate some of these findings or potentially share best practice? Yeah, I think I think that's a great, that's a really good point because I think, like you said, there are lots of different people doing some amazing work and it's so hard to know, A, who's doing what and B, if you are doing it, people don't shout about it either, you know, um, or if they do, they don't know where to shout. And I think um, I think if you're based in England, I think, and, and you're working in oncology, um, your cancer alliance, your your local cancer alliance, would be a good go-to place of finding out who that, who the contacts are there. Um, they all are quite different. Um, they sort of have a similar function in terms of what they have to deliver, but they their structure and format tends to vary quite a lot. But equally, there is one that covers every part of England. Um, 
in the sort of devolved nations, obviously things are actually a bit more joined up, I would say from, from I mean, I, I don't work in the devolved nations, but from what I see looking in um, with the health boards and the kind of way that things are more joined up. Um, so again, it's probably a bit easier to get in contact with kind of the cancer programs that are going on nationally. Um, and then, you know, in terms of a bit more locally, it's kind of trying to talk to, um, especially if you've got, there's a lot of um, pilot work, particularly in cancer, I mean, oncology, in palliative care that's funded with transformation money. So things like Macmillan funding, for instance, or NHS transformation, short-term money in effect to, to sort of run a pilot or run a project. And, and, and again, someone will have an amazing idea or a team will have an amazing idea. It gets funded to pilot. And then they get towards the end of a project and then it's a bit like, Ooh, how do we make this business as usual? Um, how do we get this sustainably funded? And it's kind of like right towards the end. And it's about kind of like then you sort of backtracking and trying to find those um, either commissioners or sort of financial decision makers to try and sell your concept to. And, you know, and, and again, so it, I would say it's finding those people in the kind of new world of commissioning and the new integrated care boards so who is who is responsible for cancer within that sometimes it falls under plan care sometimes it's cancer in its own right but it's trying to find someone and there will be a clinical lead within those organizations and again they're key because they can champion things and they can talk the language if they can if they can sell it in their own organization because they understand it clinically then it, it's got more weight than trying to if you like sell it cold to someone who who kind of maybe doesn't understand the whole clinical side of it but it, and also has to has a hard you know hard financial deficit usually to try and um, overturn you know so um but it is possible but yeah i would say cancer alliances integrated care boards find your cancer leads Candid, you mentioned like the ICSs, integrated care systems, cancer alliances, and there's the cancer commissioning groups. Can you just explain from the bottom up how it works? Just it's something I've never. I don't know. There's there's so many different terms that go around. I know someone in the CCG. I know someone in the alliance. There's the ICSs, and there's the diagnostic centre hubs coming up. From a bottom level, how would you say it up for where you work? It's really it's it's. I, I suppose it is really complex, but again, it's also just changed significantly this year because of the, they used to be very much the, um, your hospital, well, I'd say hospitals, but your kind of providers. So the people who deliver healthcare, be it in the community, primary care, secondary care. Um, and then you had the commissioners of healthcare, people who buy healthcare. Now, in theory, everybody, including social care, is all coming in together under one big banner within a region or or a sort of place area um, to become an integrated care system. And the idea is that then rather than people be kind of becoming more of a kind of business thing, it's more about sharing resources, about looking at moving money around the system for best effect. And, and from patient care point of view, joining things up across kind of um, boundaries so that you don't silo patient care, which we go and perhaps talk about long term conditions is, is really important. Um, so again, it's that kind of you have that kind of the ability at the bottom, the kind of once well, at the bottom, but the, you know actually at the coal face delivering actually delivering patient care, but then you've got the people who have to then kind of are responsible for providing the money or the money that comes down from ultimately Department of Health through the NHS regions. Um, if it's cancer, then usually coming through can quite often comes through cancer alliances to sort of fund work programs, um, then goes down sort of through to those integrated care systems integrated care boards who then kind of divvy it down so it's this kind of like cascade mechanism if you like that that kind of goes on um cancer is quite different because you have got cancer alliances you don't have that in every in every condition so again um you know cancer's in a way quite lucky because it's got that um there are other sort of networks if you like cardiovascular networks stroke networks all those sort of things but um, which again try to serve the same thing so you've got kind of those um, and I guess within um, you've got um, you know the radiology um, ODNs and things like that now as well the radiotherapy ODNs you know so you've got the kind of trying to get kind of shared best practice um, trying to kind of have things that you know aren't you know we do this or, or down to you know one consultant does this one does that it's about actually what's best practice what's evidence-based what should we be doing as a as a region as a patch rather than kind of siloed care thank you i'm sure that was quite complicated in your head to say probably didn't do it just no, it I mean, in terms of signposts if people are really are interested in the structures the king's fund is a really good go-to place for 
I mean, it's it's my go-to place quite often to explain stuff in a really um, logical, simple way that kind of, you know, um, anybody can kind of, and they use a lot of diagrams and visual stuff as well. So yeah, I would definitely say go to the King's Fund. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. So Catherine, how would you define a long-term condition? So um, any sort of chronic, any kind of illness, chronic condition that has kind of usually lasts for more than three months, but it's something that's not curable, um, that needs to be either treated or managed, um, either with drugs or treat or some form of other treatments. Um, so it's that kind of idea that people have to, um, they will have to live with something um, and they'll have to perhaps learn to obviously learn to manage it um, and kind of going forward. So, yeah, so something that's basically not not effectively something that's not curable i suppose apart from like cancer there's kind of chronic fatigue as well isn't there which is a bit of a gray area yeah 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 and then obviously you've got kind of it, it the span is huge because you you go from things like diabetes uh chronic lung disease chronic heart disease kidney disease um and i think as as i think when you look at kind of because obviously oncology and palliative care kind of go together and actually when you look at palliative care now and provision of care within hospices um if you went back i don't know sort of 15 20 years the majority of hospice users were cancer patients um the makeup of hospice patients is massively different now because you've got people living with life limiting chronic illness for much much longer but who obviously will eventually die of of sadly die of their their condition so you're looking at cancer only making up sort of 40 percent of, of hospice um numbers nowadays where you have a lot of neuromuscular conditions um you know and, and you know you've got your all your type, other type of neuro conditions parkinson's disease uh, motor neuron disease ms so it, there's so many different conditions that effectively people are living with um and cancer although cancer is such a big spectrum of disease because it's sort of 200 plus sort of actual diseases um and you can go from obviously something that that is um you know very very incurable and you know something that might actually progress very quickly and people um, sadly die from very quickly or to the other extent where people will live you know almost you know a very long life and may die of something else um you know in terms of sort of everything in between so it's because the treatments have got better because management of cancer is so much better um it's now you know going from something that people would automatically see would be something that would be life limiting very quickly to something which actually is something that you can often learn to live with um, and learn to manage. Can I ask Catherine that that obviously living with and beyond cancer has consequences because of the cancer itself and the symptoms that they present with but also are you finding now the consequences of treatment are also affecting patients longer term and so it's not actually the disease itself that's causing the long-term condition but actually it's it's the consequence of treatment completely i think that's that is you you really do really hit the nail on the head there because i think we you know new treatments come out all the time um be they you know drug treatments your chemotherapies your immunotherapies as you you will you will guys will well know around with your your radiotherapy treatments there's lots of different techniques coming out some of which you don't know the long-term effects of um, at this point in time and also you're also seeing people who had treatments years ago and are suffering the, the effects of it and actually the 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 bit that was treated the cancer if you like that was treated is long sort of gone but they're now living with secondary effects of of what we've done to them um and I think, you know, some of it's obviously we've learned as we've gone, but I think there's a need to kind of be more upfront with patients about the effects of treatment about um, and also thinking about, well, if you know that it take head and neck cancer, for instance, if you know that you're going to be delivering uh, a big, you know, lots of dose of radiotherapy or you're going to be doing a big surgical intervention on someone, you kind of know the likely implications of that before you do it. So actually, this is where the sort of prehab bit comes in. And then you look at the kind of, well, actually, how could we mitigate for some of those issues that are going to happen? Could we do something pre-treatment to prevent that? You know, could it be um, prophylactic swallowing exercises? Could it be exercise in its you know broadest form? You know, what could it be? You know, could it be um, if it's prostate cancer, could it be, um, continent um, incontinence you know 
treatments beforehand, so pelvic floor exercises, something like that, that could then hopefully kind of mitigate for any problems, the other kind of side of things. Um, and I think things like with late effects, um, particularly um, radiotherapy, again, massively broad topic, isn't it? Um, and again, you know, people, you think of how many people have pelvic radiotherapy and then how many people go on to have the range of side effects and, you know, weeks, months, years down the line, potentially. So it's, again, it's that whole kind of getting people to understand the potential for a, a kind of um, sort of secondary problem down the line, but also, you know, in, you know, kind of educating primary care GPs, other health professionals for the fact that this might be happening. And if it does, it could potentially be because of the cancer treatment that people have. Um, and then something as, as sort of as, you know, as broad as fatigue, if you like, because again, cancer related fatigue is huge and affects, you know, huge numbers of people. Again, you know, giving people kind of the tools, if you like, to manage that and kind of learn how to kind of put in place pacing techniques and ways in which they can actually kind of learn to manage it and, and live with it and hopefully then overcome it to a certain extent is kind of the what, what we need to be thinking about. Um, but yeah, we, we do, you know, we do amazing things in terms of treating cancer, We're absolutely incredible. Um, but we, it, but a lot of those things have, you know, un, you know, undesired consequences for people. And, and you do get some people who sort of say, you know, actually, if I knew that was going to happen, I may not have gone for that treatment. But, and it's, so it's, it's, it's a difficult one, but it's, it's something that we do need to be more upfront, I think, with people about the, the potential for what might happen without scaring, without scaring people as well, but just kind of giving them and giving them ways of recognizing things early so that they can kind of go and seek help or, kind of you know that's where things like support groups are great or kind of the um, health and well-being set groups and things is where people can be in an environment with people who've been through similar experiences and share stories share things that work you know can almost be far more powerful than a healthcare professional trying to kind of help it's a bit like well actually I tried that and it worked and you know and so um, so it's that type of thing which is so important so people don't feel like it's it's just them they're not the you know they're not the only one who's going through this as other people and it's something which people can manage and can do quite well with if it's if it's shared and if it's you know kind of they can get help for it. I think just for any patients listening if I was listening, I'd be like, oh my gosh, you know, they don't know what's going to happen to me. How can I sign up to have a treatment where maybe the late effects aren't yet recognised? And I suppose for anyone who is listening and that's going through their head, we, you know, the consequences of treatment, especially for radiotherapy, are so long lasting that we don't always know. But it's as a consequence almost of our success in we are treating patients now that couldn't have been cured 5, 10, 15 years ago. And I think that is the reason why patients are having late effects, because they are still alive. Um, and it's not because we are doing something to patients now that is causing harm. Um, I think that's quite an important point to make. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I think that's a, a really important a really important point, because it is, it's, it's about kind of the things have you know, technology has just moved on massively and, and research has moved on massively and there's so much more that can be done. Um, and as I say, people now who, who wouldn't have survived um, certain cancers you know, within a year, for instance, now are now living so much longer down the line because there's second and third and fourth line treatments that are becoming available to people. Um, and everybody reacts to things in a different way. And there's no there's and that's the other thing which is difficult because you can't sort of say, Do you know what, you are going to get this. You don't know that for sure. You have to kind of give people it's a bit like going for an operation. They sort of give you the kind of list of the, you know, the, 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 the things that might happen to you. And, and, you know, it can be quite scary when you think about it. But actually, the per, sort of percentages are important, but also the fact that it's about saying it might but it, you know, but if it does equally, these are the things to look out for. These are the things to and this is the place to go and get help so that people don't um, kind of go down a rabbit warren of, of kind of, you know, because that's one of the problems with, with pelvic late effects is that, that nobody necessarily recognised that it was maybe radiotherapy that was the cause. So people would be going down lots of different avenues that the primary care GPs didn't know. Um, so kind of getting things like treatment summaries out there, making sure that, the, you know, the effects of the people that, you know, pick that up early and things can be managed because anything we know, I mean, we know as, as you know, 
healthcare professionals, if you can pick something up earlier, you can usually manage it better as well. So rather than it becoming a really chronic problem and, um, you know, becoming really, really intractable and, and then difficult to treat. I think it's interesting you mentioned about kind of general practitioners because, again, bias towards therapeutic radiographers, but this is where we really have a role in primary care, whether it's a secondment or an actual job. But because people are living longer, some of the general practitioners have never seen this cohort of people who've come back to them 10 years after having treatment because they wouldn't have been alive normally. But actually they're people, you know, of such a wide range of ages as well that they come with all sorts of other things. Now people can continue working while they have their radiotherapy, for example. They can do all the normal things that perhaps back 40 years ago, people said, no, you need to be in a hospital bed, stay still, don't do anything, don't exercise, nothing. I think that opportunity now, obviously I know you're a physio, physios are great, but therapeutic radiographers have us in the community. This is a, this is a great job, just saying. <laughs> I think you're slightly biased there, Norman. <laughs> but you, I, I like, I know I get on my soapbox about this, but actually, isn't mm. it about multidisciplinary working? And isn't Maybe. it, a, you know, like Catherine and, and you working out in the community together? So physios are learning about radiotherapy side effects and yeah, vice versa. Completely. You're learning the prehabilitation and rehabilitation advice. I think it's key because I just think, you know, I, if I look back to when I, and I know I'm, told and I trained quite a long time ago but you know I don't think that physio training and I'll probably get shot down in flames for saying this but has changed that much in the time you know we we were taught really to be frightened in, in the day of, of cancer and you didn't touch you know didn't touch anyone with cancer you might spread it you might do I know it's not like that now exactly but you know that was how it was when I trained so you know a lot you didn't encourage people to go in a into the profession but equally it didn't kind of encourage you to know anything about what the likes of therapeutic radiographers did um what you know other professions other than the sort of core professionals that we came across and ot would be the obvious one because you work so closely obviously we usually work quite closely with ot's in um but you know we didn't understand what dietitians did particularly speech therapists not in the and you know at the end of the day we we all have a role in in promoting wellness in patients and kind of patient good patient care and so I think it's important that we do have an understanding of of what you know other people you know other professions deliver um, and I think there is a huge need and I think primary care would be the first to admit it you know they I mean it's struggling anyway massively primary care but you know there's so much that can be provided by other healthcare professionals that would relieve the burden on GPs um, and yes physios is the one that's often you know you've often got extendoscope practitioners out in in you know treating back pains and musculoskeletal problems and things like that but actually it goes much deeper than that and you know I'm seeing roles now about you know dietitians in the in primary care and things so I think it's getting there but it does need to it does need to kind of go further and kind of really kind of bridge that gap between this this holy grail of the hospital and the specialist cancer center or the you know you know the kind of places that they get sent to if you like to have their treatment and kind of just say well actually they might go there and receive treatment but they live hopefully in their own homes or in their communities and that's where they spend the majority of their time um, and they then go in and out of healthcare if they need to for, for acute episodes but actually the care should be seamless across those those boundaries and that's the challenge that we've we've got and I think it things are moving and places are doing this and starting to do this but I think we can you know definitely need to take it further to think about not when they're there seeing you in your in your centre and in when you know as a patient as such but actually as someone who out as soon as they leave the doors has got to go and live their life and and has all the other problems that we all have every day and all sorts of other issues going on and and their health condition is something else just to add to the mix really and I think we sometimes look at it as it's only that one thing that they've got and it's not other either health or social or other concerns or problems or challenges that are going on and I think that's that's something I mean I know I was guilty of that in the past working in acute care um you know we we would see people coming in um to hospital you know to hospital for surgery if you like and you know once they left the hospital you know it was you were waiting for the next one to come in to to, to the bed to deal with them you sort of forgotten about what happened you know to them once they left the hospital so yeah we do need to join up care and I think kind of having 
help more better awareness of what roles like yourselves do is really really important joe i'm only being biased so that i can get a job in the future that has windows <laughs> yeah definitely <laughs> It's not a lot to ask in life, is it? But yeah, as a therapeutic radio. Yeah, you do live in the in the bunkers. <laughs> yeah, I love that. <laughs> maybe one day, Naman. Maybe one day. So, Catherine, you've kind of um, aligned to it a little bit as you've been talking. Um, my favourite topic of the, of the moment is prehabilitation and rehabilitation. So obviously for long-term conditions um, of which cancer obviously features now, um, I was doing some reading and uh, the top five most common long-term conditions for people with cancer are high blood pressure, um, obesity, mental health problems, chronic heart disease and kidney disease. And just reading those, you can already see how complex potentially patients' health are even though they're going through an oncology pathway, they could have lots of other things that they're also dealing with that also affect their health. You know, how are we going to manage our patients with personalised care as they're going through an oncology pathway when we don't necessarily take our blinkers off to see that patient and everything that's happening to them or that potentially might happen in the future? Mm -hmm. Yeah, again, really good point because, you know, we're, we're specialists in our own fields and I think sometimes we, we're we comfortable in our own field, obviously, because that's what we're skilled in, what we've learned. And we're often frightened to go down the, the route of kind of asking, opening Pandora's box and asking about anything else because you you kind of think, well, what if they say something? I don't know what the what the answer is. I don't, you know, and I, and, and I, th- I would say the thing is to be, not be frightened to ask people rather than kind of, you know, that it's about the the disease that they come with or the multitude of diseases, it's about actually what are the problems, what are the issues, concerns for them. Um, and I think that's where the kind of idea of the holistic needs assessment and the con- sort of concerns checklist, if you like, comes from. And that whole kind of op- that open question of is what, you know, what, what are the issues for you? Because yes, you might have a particular cancer or you might have a other chronic conditions but you can manage that that bit's under control but actually you've got awful you know financial hardship that's really causing you some something that you know really needs to be sorted now and if that could be sorted you could then cope with other things or your you know your diabetes is is out of control but you know your, your cancer's okay and you kind of go well just ignore that cause i don't think about diabetes but and you and it's not the expectation that you that you should but it's not a reason not to ask people how to, you know, how they are, how they're doing. Often with chronic conditions, obviously, a lot, a lot of the time patients are become skilled in their very, very skilled in their own issue, in the way they manage their condition, in what works for them. And it's important to listen to them and not dismiss something that's kind of you know, wacky, but actually it works for them. Wonderful. Great. You know, they're the ones who live with it all the time. Um, but it's also about saying you can signpost, you can, there's other places to go, other resources. I think things like the cancer support worker resources just, you know, and similar types of those sort of the social prescribers in primary care, the link workers, really phenomenal roles because they can be a lot of those bridges to the kind of from the specialist to actually go, well, do you know what, if I go and contact this, this place or refer them back to so-and-so, it kind of helps to manage the join up of care. So I'd say that would be one thing to say really is, is don't be frightened to ask if even if you you may well not know the answer it doesn't matter you can you can you know find someone who does or you can you can just listening sometimes is just the most important thing people can can get from something so yeah don't be frightened to ask I think that's a really valid point isn't it I think even as you kind of open up about your training and not being confident to talk to cancer patients at the beginning it's quite similar now I think some people especially therapeutic radiographers that I've worked with I know Joe as well just think that giving normal healthy advice isn't part of their scope of practice which I find really strange because when you have a conversation with your friend who's drinking too much you're giving them advice why can't you do it to a patient if a patient should be eating more healthy you can tell them you don't have to be like me a review radiographer or a consultant or a doctor anyone can do that that's free advice everywhere all the time yeah. I just I find that quite strange yeah yeah you're right and I think it's and again people frightened to, to say the wrong thing or to 
do something that's going to cause harm. And I think that's that's again, you know, you, you're not going to cause harm by encouraging someone to be more active, um, even if that's just going for a walk every day or just changing their lifestyle simply to, you know, involve doing the stairs more often or, you know, simple things like that that they can manage within their own um, parameters is really important. Like I said, stopping smoking is a, a really key one or, or, you know, trying to eat better. It doesn't You don't have to kind of be a, you know, a, a nutritional expert to, to encourage someone, you know, that that's an important thing and signpost somewhere where they can go and get that advice, you know, and especially if they've got, you know, particular specialist problems. Um, but no, you know, we, we can all do our bit. And I think it's getting that message across because if we're all kind of saying, a similar message to people then it kind of becomes it reinforces it so it's not just becomes something that you has to be said by the doctor or has to be said by by so and so you know yes certain you know we know that certain types of exercise really do benefit people for instance in prehab and rehab but actually do you know what that's and that's great if we can get people into that and we can give them those interventions but actually just moving more being more active doing more in your daily life is you know is equally beneficial and really can help people just go down and help to bring their, their family on board or go for a walk with someone or you know so again it kind of nurtures a positive behavior change across you know it's not just them thinking oh my goodness it's only me who's got to go and do this actually the whole you know the family sign up or the you know you've got a friend that knocks on the door and says right we're going to go out for a you know a walk or a run or something or a bike ride or something you know you're more likely to do it aren't you so yeah it's it's the positive domino effect so exercise and I, I'll always go back to mental health and I was going to say Joe I think the statistics yeah. it almost feels like the mental health should be number Scary. one by now really I think that's probably underrepresented because people aren't still ready to talk about Absolutely. it but the domino effect you know if you tell a patient's carer well why don't you you know just walk around the street with them or up and down the street that will give get them outside. get them outside yeah. that might get encouraged other people to say okay well tomorrow my brother's going to come and do it Thursday my mum's going to do it and it's that domino yeah, effect, yeah. isn't it? And we know with mental health now, you know, it, it's so important for those kind of being out in green spaces or doing things like, you know, there's the concept of green gyms, you know, the kind of, you know, you kind of got, you know, these like gardening groups or kind of ways in which you can be, you know, doing something practical whilst being active and being outdoors, you know, so you kind of have some a purpose to do what you do. And that, that might then involve meeting people or, you know, getting people together and kind of starting to get conversations a lot of the walking groups the walking for health groups and things again work well for people's mental health and also their kind of psychological concerns with cancer because you weren't sat in a room in a group in a circle you know having to talk to someone which can be really daunting but if you're walking and talking you don't even have to look at them but you know you 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 know you can actually just talk and then you know kind of and that breaks down a lot of barriers and and kind of ways of doing things or then then you go and have a coffee afterwards and it's that kind of whole social interaction thing which I think is helps people who you know who would otherwise be really isolated and frightened to go and do something because it's you know but actually they can then be with people doing stuff making friends kind of having contacts feeling like they're part of their own community as well that's important so um, but yes like you said small things small steps domino effect you know doesn't need to be something you know doesn't have to be going to you know some high-end exercise thing that's wonderful if people can do that but it's not it's not for everybody and it's also um you know you can still make lots of different changes to improve you know people's well-being i, I always know when patients go i can't afford the gym i'm like you don't need to go to the gym at all there's no need for it to be in the gym and i have to give a shout out because uh numman has now dragged me into the 5k your way i'm now yorkshire ambassador um but a great charity and i've used it as a patient and also um obviously supporting it now but it is it is as simple as walking talking you know sharing experiences that can make a real difference and it isn't some people's perception of being active or exercise as being in a gym heavily breathing sweating you know having to get changed even it you know the concept of that has changed dramatically and it's just kind of verbalizing yeah. that isn't it absolutely and even within the the leisure center sector that has changed that has revolutionized you know because it's gone from being this kind of thing where you know fitness freaks go 
but to something which is actually they've embraced the whole health and well-being agenda now so much more and actually to the point where you are getting you know your all shapes and sizes and you know ages and everybody being able to actually go to those environments and they've you know there's lots of either free schemes or subsidized schemes as well and you've got exercise instructors who are trained to manage chronic diseases like cancer like cardiovascular disease um, cardiac conditions things like parkinson's disease that's a common one now stroke um, and again so it's they've they've realized that they need to change their models um, because there's a you know there's a whole industry out there to be honest and actually they need to get different people into the into the leisure centers so so again you know the leisure centers often do provide some really great things for um you know either older adults or people with chronic conditions um so again it's not this kind of you know the lycra clad you know as you say gym gym person that you kind of think that's not me and it's kind of but you know but actually you could go and be could be using those facilities and still fit in you know so it's again it's kind of it's about finding i always say to people don't do something you don't like doing you know if you don't like running don't go and run because you won't sustain it you'll but if you like cycling if you like doing something else go and do that because you're gonna you're gonna likely carry on and do it um, so yeah, just think yeah, it's not just a one size fits all. It's got to kind of be something which people find that they like, they want to do, and they want to keep doing. It could be a, a team sport of some sort, a walking sport, or a um, you know something where you are in a in a group, that sort of thing as well. Yeah, and the, the charity Joe's talking about, Move Charity, oh, and five five k away. Um, I didn't drag you in, Joe. You you agreed to it, <laughs> and you forgot to say the best thing about five k away is that you get coffee and cake at the end after you're walking or running. That's what got me into it. <laughs> I ran a park run PB and then I got cake at the end. It was great. Perfect. That's why I, I think they need it. a dietitian yeah. at the end to give out the fruit and the veg. <laughs> what if you get fruit cake though? Exactly. Oh, yeah. Everything in moderation. <laughs> Everything in moderation. <laughs> Catherine, you hold, as you said, you talk about being a lead. Um, around prehab, rehab, and probably having experience of viewing different projects going from sort of successes and failures, etc. But for any one of our listeners, what are the sort of barriers and challenges to maybe not necessarily always just implementing a service, because that's quite a big project, but even just considering it and then maybe getting to implementing it? Yeah, I think it's how, it's how do you get that that wonderful idea, that little nugget of whatever, whatever it is to something which is going to work. And it's, it is really difficult. It's difficult when you work clinically because you're trying to do your day job. You haven't, you know, and your team's off sick and you're trying to do everything. Um, so it's about, I think, finding the people around you who can help as well. So don't, not thinking it's just got to be you and your team that do this. So, um, so within organisations, there will be people service managers business managers people who can help to kind of get the the kind of right what are the things we need in place what facilities are you looking at doing what kind of staffing models um you don't need to be an expert in writing a business case but you can you can get a lot of experience from people around you who do so you kind of start to consider those things from the outset um and almost think about right what outcomes do we need to be collecting that's really important because you need to be showing an, an effect especially if you're piloting something but you don't want to have so many outcome measures that you don't know what then what to do with them so again kind of finding the kind of key what is it you're trying to look at um is is really important um but yeah i would say try not to think about kind of doing something alone try and go and find people within the organization who can who can help so it could be the start could be their own manager but it could be someone within a, um, a business unit or a service unit um, or you could be going out to your cancer alliance or your your inter integrated care board finding someone who will kind of buy your idea as something which is which is worth doing um, if you've got evidence to support it fantastic obviously because again especially clinically you know the, the clinicians will kind of want research and they'll want kind of the but actually sometimes it's just it's just the right thing to do and, and prehab has that kind of that whole thing about it we, we get a lot of kind of flack back going you know there's so many different models there's so many of this the research is kind of it's out there but it's not you know it's not really compelling yes but it is the right thing to do and you know prehab for cancer has shown that other prehab programs have shown that you know it does it is the right thing to do for people and it's not you know and the weight behind that is really important so you know kind of getting people on board and then trying it and now there's so many programs going on now um 
and it's you know it's just becoming it's hopefully going to become the standard of care um and that's it so it's trying to take that kind of idea nurture it but find support and kind of get it get it out there um and you know so that you're not the one who's having to do it all plus the day job and everything else in between starts with an elevator pitch doesn't it basically what would you say to someone how would you go about doing an elevator pitch i think it's as simple i think it's as simple as saying you you looking at kind of right what's your what's the out what's the outcome what's the thing that you're you're actually trying to do what is it you're you know how can you improve your patient care and then it's basically saying you can improve your patient outcomes by doing x or y or whatever it is and it can be as simple as 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 implementing this you almost kind of going going about it in that way often you you've kind of got the you want to have the kind of end point or the kind of thing that you're trying to achieve up front because you want to hook hook them into that you want to kind of go do you want to see your patients you know kind of live longer or kind of have a better outcome or spend less time in hospital or whatever the the thing is right well if you if we do this you will get that and it's that kind of just way of simplifying it so often people think about some like a business case is this great big long document and you know if you're lucky someone might get past the first line they're never going to get to the hook line which is at the end you put the hook line at the top get them interested because it's something that's going to be of interest to them be it and it and that's key find out what it is that motivates that person you know is it is it finance often is sadly but actually is it about patient outcomes is it what is it that's that's the thing right pitch that how do you do it we can come along and do that for you you know that's that's the kind of that's what you want to try and do so it's kind of rather than a kind of long ramble and then the thing at the end tip it on its head amazing um advice there um catherine something i have also noticed as well is that actually um lots of practitioners have great ideas because of their practice their experience the pathway the protocols they forget to ask the patient (laughs) and this is something that I always do with anyone that I'm supporting around developing an innovative service or an intervention or anything is to just go just wait one minute what do the patients think and it's really funny and I'm sure you do this a lot as part of your role but um it's always funny how they go oh I've not really spoken to any patients because well, I know this will work and I know this is the outcome and this is what's important. Yeah. And it's it's not always the case, is it? No, no. And often you can go down that kind of rabbit warren and then do something and then no one actually does it because it's not, because it's been set up completely and it might be the good best intentions and it might be that the concept was the right thing, but actually the implementation of it was completely and utterly wrong because nobody thought about asking people. And it's not about, so often you'll see that token patient rep on a group or on a on a board or whatever you know and it's almost like that tick box we've got our patient rep and it's like no you need to actually go and 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 engage your population you need to understand what people really want the people who and the people who don't aren't those traditional patient reps the people who you know who can so you can get a broad spectrum of actually what your your community looks like and what they need and want and stuff because then you'll get truly get what is needed and and often you know, it might be something really small that makes a massive difference, but you know, by by doing something kind of completely radical over here, but you think, well, it just you know, and actually could have just spoken to them and done actually if we just joined that up there, that would have worked really. But you know, so no, absolutely patient involvement and from right from the outset and all the way through projects is so, so important. Don't just bring them in at the end to kind of help to evaluate, you know, design them, co-design them, co-create them with patients. It's really, really important. Apart from not having the patient voice in, is there something if someone comes to you with an idea that really you don't like to see, I suppose, for anyone to try and stamp out the bad behaviours now when it comes to projects? Uh, that's, a, that's a good question, isn't it? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think sometimes it's kind of like people come up with some an idea and it's and it's almost just like, well, we need to measure that or we need to. And it's for me, it's always I never want to be running a project that doesn't have I can't link it back to direct patient care and and direct improvements for patients so you know is it widget counting you know okay it might be but actually 
if you can turn that into a so what does that mean if you collect that evidence collect that data but then do something about it to change a pathway or change something to make it positive so yeah i think anything that doesn't have a you know you can't link it back to kind of some form of patient care i would say is um is is for me is kind of like well for us for us as a obviously a clinically based team you know that's kind of like a um a no-no and we'd be just be like you know we don't want to go don't want to be doing that thank you very much <laughs> <laughs> luckily we don't get a lot of that because most of the time there was you know there are lots you know it is about patient care fortunately <laughs> Oh, thank you, Catherine. I think both Neman and I um, could speak to you all night, uh, but we won't we won't take up any more of your time. But just before we close, are there any top tips that you would give to any healthcare practitioners, any patients, anyone with a long term health condition? You know, is there anything that you'd like to end on that you'd like people to take away with them? Um, so, yeah, I think I guess it's it's that it's that message about um you know you can do simple things that can make a big difference to your um either yourself as a patient or as a person or as the health healthcare professional so it's that kind of whole thing about you know small steps um you know small changes to people's lifestyles can actually have a really big positive impact not only on them but on their wider sort of family and network around them as well so yeah kind of just don't be frightened to kind of promote that whole well-being activity whatever it is message around there um you don't have to be an expert you can you can do it but and you can find people who are if you need some you know really specialist advice you can find that but yeah you don't need to be an expert loads of resources out there Thank you so much. I'm waiting for the day I walk into an NHS trust and they haven't got sit down desks and they're all uh, <laughs> standing desks or you're sitting on a treadmill. Have you seen actually with when there was the COVID pandemic, everyone was working from home, they had treadmills and you could walk yeah, whilst yeah, standing you could be on your, Or you could be on your Peloton while you do the, you know, kind of the, or walking meetings. It's just so, yeah, it, you know, let's go out, let's go and do a walk. You know, you can do teams on your phone, you can walk, you can walk and talk. It's like amazing. <laughs> Well, yeah, we're, see yeah. we're seeing our chemo patients on bikes, aren't we? So, oh, yeah. yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Amazing. Oh, well, thank you so very much for joining us. It's been amazing. No, thank you for inviting me. So thank you for listening to Rad Chat. Your hosts today have been Joe McNamara and Naman Jolka Anderson. A huge thank you again to Catherine Neck. If you're utilising this podcast for CPD purposes, consider the reflective questions posted along with the links to resources and literature that we've discussed. To receive your accredited CPD certificate, please complete the Google form linked with our next guest to feature will be Darian Laird, who will be discussing the Global Coalition for Radiotherapy. Thank you again for listening and